Um, tonight, I wanted to talk about the topic of the first factor of the Buddha's Eightfold Path, which is wise or appropriate view, sometimes called wise or appropriate understanding. <clears throat> In Pali, it's called Samaditi. And it's odd, it's a somewhat of a, you know, weirdly a difficult topic because it's everything really that the Buddha taught. It starts with view and how we see the world and how we develop clarity and to the nature of our experience. What's happening in this moment, in this present time awareness, uh, and how we perceive that. Oftentimes we get a little bit, I think, culturally caught up in some of the more fantastical stories around, you know, Buddhist texts or even biblical Christian texts or, uh, you know, other religious texts, the metaphysical and the, the fantastic stories that we hear, the miracles that are worked. And this is very common in Buddhism with the Buddhist story of his awakening. Um, naturally, there's a lot of flowers raining from the heavens and the victory won. And, um, and I think that this is a beautiful metaphor for the beautiful quality of an awakened mind. But the problem with this is, is it puts awakening and things like enlightenment out of reach of our everyday, ordinary human lives, which... Isn't, I don't think, what was intended. In the autobiographical story that the Buddha told himself about his own awakening, he describes the process of awakening as a radical shift of perspective. So not any magical, um, you know, moving into other realms or moving into some unconditioned state of nirvana that... uh, uh, you know, it was like a big present that got opened up, but more so a shift of his perspective in view and how he was able to, through experience, see and know the world as it was. This path factor, the, in the Eightfold Path, wiser, appropriate views, the first path factor, and it's in a way the forerunner and the foundation of the Eightfold Path, as well as the result. And so it kind of has a bookend on the beginning and the end. But the Eightfold Path itself is not so much a linear path, it's more of a circle. It's a bunch of supportive factors that enhance our well-being, enhance uh, a liberated heart and mind, an awakened mind. We practice, at least in early Buddhism, for two reasons. To enrich our clarity into the nature of our experiences. So to have more clarity into what's actually happening while it's happening. Which you could call wisdom. And then to cultivate our heart's responsiveness to those experiences. So, you know, having more clarity into the nature of what is unfolding in front of us and developing a responsiveness that leads towards less suffering and more ease. A lot of this is based in the reality that we're born into a biological unit that craves pleasure and wants to avoid pain. 
We call this the pleasure-pain dichotomy. And we're born in a human world that has both. The Chinese Buddhists say life is equally 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. And so we want to see the ways that we suffer around our relationship to pain, for example, or even the ways that we suffer around our relationship to pleasure by craving or clinging to it. And we want to learn to develop a response that doesn't leave our claw marks in the nature of our reality, that allows us to be more flexible and creative and spontaneous in the ways that we're human, allows us to be more vulnerable and to have access to that vulnerability. The Buddha was a pragmatist. Oftentimes he's referred to as the first psychologist, really. What he was interested in is the nature of our mind and how we self-generate stress sometimes intentionally and sometimes unintentionally. So we develop through experience our own wisdom. Sometimes words, I have a very associative mind, so when I hear wisdom, I usually think of people that I consider wise. And that again, it creates this almost, for me, it's like something that I aspire to be or something that I would really wish that I had was wisdom. But wisdom is based on experience through our life we all we all have our own wisdom based on our experience and by practicing things like mindfulness and being aware and more attuned and in touch with the conditions of our lives we develop more wisdom just naturally right we even know this in neuroscience you you have more neuroplasticity more flexibility of brain structure in practicing mindfulness because you're not as biased by our perception We're not as caught up in what they call the negativity bias, which is where we tend to mostly pay attention to what makes us uncomfortable. What could be better? I would be happy or I will be happy. I'll be able to slow down and chill out once Thanksgiving's over, right? Or once I get my next paycheck or, you know, all the if-onlys and the what-ifs and the shoulda-coulda-wouldas and... And so this bias of perception is really, it, it keeps us in this, in what we would call samsara, the cycle of continuing this pattern of trying to find our happiness here, you know, outside of ourselves. And so the shift in perspective is in part this radical accountability of, and this radical acceptance of the reality that the happiness that I am seeking is uh, an internal endeavor. And it's born out of my actions and not out of the things that the world can throw at me. Intellectually, we know this. I mean, we could sit around and probably most of us would agree that things we hear in our society like uh, money doesn't buy happiness. They did a study on this, actually. Money does buy happiness to a certain degree, but after a certain point, it creates more misery. Um, And so we like comfort, we like money, we like conditions, we like things to be comfortable. And they can't always be that way. And so how do we respond? How do we see and learn to develop some acceptance in a realistic perspective of our vulnerability 
and to be able to respond when things are difficult or even when things are great, being able to respond with joy instead of, I have to make this last. Bhikkhu Bodhi says, the importance of right view can be gauged from the fact that our perspectives on the crucial issues of reality and value have a bearing that goes beyond mere theoretical convictions. So he says, our perceptions govern our attitudes, our actions, our whole orientation to existence. Our views might not be clearly formulated in our mind. We might have only a hazy conceptual grasp of our beliefs, but whether formulated or not, expressed or maintained in silence, these views have a far-reaching influence. They structure our perceptions, order our values, crystallize into the ideational framework through which we interpret to ourselves the meaning of our being in the world. In a sense, a lot of what we're doing here is reorienting our view of how we see things. It's kind of like when you're going on a hike in the woods. You uh, you need some map. You need some knowledge of the terrain ahead, maybe. Unless it's maybe well marked and you can just walk it alone. But you need some idea of where you're going. And so we need some practice around our view and our understanding in the beginning to give us a context for how we practice the Dharma and how we, how we practice uh, the Buddhist teaching. And in walking the terrain is where we get the real richness of the experience. That's where you see the sights. That's where you see um, you know, maybe the pond that wasn't marked on the map or the family of deer that was running through the woods. The things that can't be expected that we get to actually experience, they, those enhance our view. And that's where we develop wisdom. And so on the outset, what we like to have is a little bit of some guidance or some guidelines. And right view in the way that the Buddha taught it, or sometimes called right view, I like wise or appropriate view, really has two factors. One is based in principle and one's based in practice. In principle, start there, is this idea of karma or kama. The short version of karma is a lot different than what we in our culture think karma to be. Karma is basically that right now, here as we sit, we're living in a field of conditions. It's kind of, the Buddha used agrarian or farm-based metaphors to describe his practice a lot of times. I like this because it's simple and it makes sense. Basically, we have an opportunity to plant seeds based on thoughts that we choose to participate in, things we choose to say, and ways we choose to act. And based on the seeds that we plant, we have an opportunity then to let those seeds fall to the waste or to water them and to continue to participate in growing them and cultivating them. So you water certain seeds and you don't water certain seeds. Some get more water than others. And then you get to pick fruit. 
that's basically the ideology of what karma is in principle. What we've kind of translated that to mean to our more simple minds is basically if you do something, you get a result. And it's almost this linear deterministic form of karma. Someone's an asshole, so they wreck their car, right? Oh, well, that was their karma. You know, or you get shorted $5, you know, because you stole $5 from someone. And that's not at all what we're talking about. And actually, this was kind of the view of early Indian schools of thought that predate Buddhism, is this more deterministic, linear view that what goes around comes around. And I actually think it's a harmful view to hold. Because how do we explain things like poverty? Or how do we explain things like disability? Oh, well, is that your fault? You know, is that your own actions led to that directly? I don't see that being true at all. But rather, karma is more of a complex system. Whereas our past actions and our past thoughts and our past ways of communicating influence the present but also our present ways of thinking, speaking, and communicating also influence the present. So we have some volition, some agency there. So maybe I've always interacted with someone a certain way, but it doesn't mean that I don't have some volition or opportunity to act in a different way. Right? My present actions, speech, thoughts also create conditions. And then there also, my present is creating the future. But it's this complex web. And a way to look at this is like uh, in social work, I'm a social worker, we look at like the biological, psychological, and social model of assessment. And so what that means is basically there are many, many, many factors, nature and nurture, right? There are many factors that influence our behaviors and that condition our perceptions of the world. Biologically, we have a nervous system that fight, flights, and freezes. We have an emotional system that when we perceive threats or opportunities in our environment, the emotional messages hijack our rational brain, and we react from those emotions to keep us safe. Emotions are calls to action. That's biological. We all have something like that. But the way that that manifests for each one of us is very different, based on many, many, many conditions, right? And then we have psychological, we have defenses, we have, um, you know, we have rationalization and denial strategies. We have, uh, you know, some of us are more passive and some of us are more confrontational, you know, because of maybe our family systems were that way. Or maybe we were bullied in middle school and we learned to be more guarded or more confrontational. You see how all of these things, there's just so many. And so it's not so important that we know the cause of every condition. What's important is that you know that, as the Buddha says, beings are the owners of their actions, the heirs of their actions, they spring from their actions, are bound to their actions, and are supported by their actions. So we're radically responsible for the ways that we act through thought, through speech, and through direct behavior. Because it has an effect. 
<clears throat> so we this understanding in principle of karma means that if I act in ways that are skillful, if I act in ways that are based in value and integrity, that that creates less harm, that creates more ease, both for myself and others, that creates a world that's just generally more safe. And so do we hold this view, I forget it quite often, do I realize that when I'm sitting in my car going over this resentment that I have towards my boss for 20 minutes on the way to work, that that's going to create some, that's going to feed the force of the resentment itself. Buddha also said, whatever one thinks and ponders upon becomes the inclination of the mind. So even our mental habits and what we participate in, uh, they uh, have some momentum to them, yeah? And so we're responsible in the sense of we want to develop the ability to respond in a way that will create more ease and well-being for not only ourselves but for others in the world around us. And this has magnificent implications for our social world as well. Imagine if everyone took the five Buddhist training precepts as a regular daily practice. Not as moral codes that you're eventually going to be commandments that you're going to be kind of cast aside at the gates of whatever (laughs) for one day, but as training precepts to not cause harm to not intentionally cause harm, I should say. In some sense, being alive is, in being alive, we naturally cause harm. But refraining from intentionally causing harm, refraining from intentionally taking what's not freely offered to us, being wise and careful in our communication, refraining from being dishonest and manipulative in speech, Refraining from causing harm with our sexuality. And uh, one of my favorites is being careful around our consumption, what we consume in our mind, in our, uh, what we ingest physically, you know, drugs and alcohol or social media or TV. Again, not that it's bad or right or wrong, but just knowing that that has an effect too, that, that, ha- that that's a karmic that's a karmic, that's an action. So, you know, if I, if I consume, then, then that has an effect. And think about the social implications. If we all took on this training precept and we all were like, okay, I'm going to practice mindfulness, I'm going to come to the group and I'm going to really, uh, you know, really try this Buddhist practice out for some time. That just makes a safer environment. That, makes, that gives me more confidence that I'm not going to be harmed. That gives me more confidence that people aren't going to steal my shoes while I'm meditating, right? It gives me more confidence. And then all of the distrust that we experience that is caused by our threat and our feelings of fear that drives all of the violence in the world, that stuff doesn't have to be as loud as it is. So we don't want to be unwise or just naively trusting, but we want to associate with people that hold integrity as one of their primary practices, that hold ethical practice 
not causing harm, is one of their primary goals of life. You know, am I making a living here? What am I doing here while I'm alive? Where am I living? Am I living in order to wake up? This is karma, you know, that we have an effect with our actions and that that's a tremendous power. Principle, wise, appropriate view, principle of karma. And then there's a practice that's offered, and I won't be able to, you know, i got about ten minutes or so to talk about it, but this is the practice that's oftentimes when you study Buddhism or learn about Buddhism, you hear the Buddhist teaching is the middle path, and that his teaching is the four noble truths and the eightfold path. <clears throat> It's uh, somewhat clear to a lot of Buddhist scholars, and I tend to subscribe to this view, that the Buddha didn't teach noble truths. The Buddha didn't teach some truth or some dogmatic system of belief that um, we need to subscribe to. What he taught is he taught a set of practices. And so the four noble truths are, I like to reframe as the four tasks, And the first task has to do with embracing our vulnerability. This is the idea that inherent in life is something that the Buddha described as dukkha. And it's a word that can't easily be translated. Dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A, has a variety of meanings. It means anything from suffering, so inherent in life is suffering. Some of us are like, yeah, I get with that, that makes sense. Some of us, that's like, I don't know, that's a little, that's a big word, right? So what are we talking about? Dukkha is basically the insecurity, the sense of vulnerability, the ungrounded reality that we're born into a world that's not certain. We're born into a world that doesn't come with guaranteed safety, doesn't come with lasting permanence that comes with change, that comes with transience, that comes with joy and sorrow, and that we, being born into this world simply, are vulnerable to the pain that the world has to offer. We're born, and at some point we figure out we're going to die, right? And so this big, even existential reality of birth, aging, sickness, death, of being exposed to loss, of losing jobs, right, losing pets, losing loved ones, of losing relationships that we once had. The Buddha describes dukkha in all of these ways, so he says, birth is dukkha, Aging is dukkha. And you can think in your head maybe vulnerability. Birth is a vulnerable state. Aging is dukkha. Sickness is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Encountering what is not dear is dukkha. Separation from what is dear is dukkha. Not getting what one wants is dukkha. In brief, clinging... This one's a little in left field. Clinging to the psychobiological human condition is dukkha. 
and so I won't go into the last one. But what we're talking about here is we're talking about just embracing and coming into the truth, the truth of the reality that we're vulnerable to birth and we're vulnerable to aging and sickness and death and we're vulnerable to separation and grief and loss. And what happens generally is out of this vulnerability or this insecurity, this feeling of being unsafe by our vulnerability, what we tend to do is we develop reactive habits to it. We try to find comfort. We crave and we cling consistency. We crave and we cling security when it's not possible all of the time. It's good to have a desire for comfort. It's good to have a desire to, you know, I think it's nice to enjoy ice cream and to have hopes and dreams and aspirations. But what we're talking here is embracing our vulnerability and learning to, in the second task, let go of our reactivity, the demanding the satisfaction of our desires, demanding lasting comfort. So we learn to embrace and we learn to start to turn towards our pain to better understand it, to turn towards grief and loss and experiences of separation to better understand that. And to stop all of the ways that we go into denial or we rationalize or justify our behavior all of the ways that we obsess or go into the to-do mind and the, uh, the tendencies to try to fix and manage and control the conditions to make it permanent to make it last you know, is it okay to allow ourselves to feel pain and to feel then also we get the, to actually experience joy. In Buddhism, they di- differentiate between worldly feelings and unworldly feelings. And so there's the worldly excitement and joy that we oftentimes go for, the Netflix show or the, you know, the ice cream in the fridge or the uh, validation that I get from some project that I did really well. And those things are nice, and there's a lot of joy to be had there. But then there's the joy that comes from our spiritual practice. There's the joy that comes from the understanding that I'm living in my integrity and that I'm embracing my vulnerability, that I'm willing to sit with someone that's grieving or in loss, and that I'm willing to sit with myself when I'm in pain and be able to experience the humanness of that. And through that, there's some of the most tremendous beauty in our lives comes from our most painful moments. I mean, I even would ask you to reflect on your life. Most of who we are today has come, the parts of ourselves that we like, at least, have come from a lot of challenge and growth. So we let go of the reactivity and all of the fixing and changing and controlling. 
And then we get to behold, and this is what I've already started to talk about, we get to behold the uh, cessation, is how they say it, behold the cessation of reactivity. So when we don't react or right away I have to find the comfort or go after it, what I get to see is that I can actually tolerate more than I thought that I could. This doesn't mean we have to lay down for and tolerate oppression or pain. But this means that by experiencing pain, we get to see that we can experience it and we can turn towards it. And by experiencing joy, we can actually let that touch the heart. In Buddhism, we call this the citta. If anything, the Dharma, the practice of the Dharma is about connecting with our own humanity. It's simple. It's about being, you know, Eckhart Tolle, right? Be here now. It's about being here. Being here and being alive while you're here and being moved and affected by what's happening here and seeing that with some clarity so we don't get so caught up in the obsessions and the perfectionism and this inner critic and the inner tyrant and the comparing mind and the evaluating mind. And more in the curious, creative, playful, almost childlike mind. The beginner's mind, as they say in Zen. What if we could see every experience new every time we saw it? So we get to have that. That's this third task of being able to actually be present for those experiences where we don't feel reactive where we feel balanced even amidst pain or even amidst some insecurity or doubt. And in order to do that, the fourth task is to cultivate a path. It's to develop, it's to commit to a spiritual practice, and it's to practice that. Not in theory, not in just concept of, I am a Buddhist, but no, I'm aspiring to be a Buddha, right? I'm not, I'm not trying to just do another thing so I can beat myself up when I don't do it right. When I'm a bad Buddhist because I yelled at my dog, right? <laughs> but just a training, a, tra- a practice of training. The Eightfold Path. View, intention, speech, action, livelihood. Effort, concentration, and mindfulness. Developing these skills, developing these qualities, and having the aspiration of the Buddha. This is the refuge in the Buddha. Having the confidence through experience in the Dharma, the teachings, the path. And having the accountability and the support of the Sangha, the community. That's why we're here. So I'm going to read a quote by Carl Jung, and uh, he uses male pronouns. I didn't have time to switch it to female pronouns, so forgive me, or any other pronouns, but we'll keep it in the he form for now. 
He says, if you imagine someone who is brave enough to withdraw all his projections, then you get an individual who is conscious of a pretty thick shadow. Such a man has saddled himself with new problems and conflicts. He has become a serious problem to himself, as he is now unable to say that they do this or that, they are wrong, they must be fought against. Such a man knows that whatever is wrong in the world is in himself, and if he only learns to deal with his own shadow, he has done something real for the world. He has succeeded in shouldering at least an infinitesimal part of the gigantic, unresolved social problems of our day. So these are some of my thoughts on, in my understanding of wise understanding. And uh, we all have our own experiences and life experiences and our own wisdom. So this time in the evening is uh, for that, is for us to have some discussion. You can have some comments or just any discussion or dialogue that you have. So the floor is open. Thank you.